Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Why Football podcast with me, Doku, and Michael Dryden. This week we take a look at why there have been so few teams from the old East Germany in the Bundesliga since its reunification in 1990. But before we start, please follow us on Twitter at WhyFootball underscore and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and YouTube. Also to highlight this week as well, Dryden is actually a history graduate. So this is this is this is one of his uh, specialties uh, in terms of uh, the history of German football. So I'm really really excited to get this one going. So, Dryden, how you doing? Uh, I was going to perhaps drop that in right at the end if I got brave. I wasn't expecting that right away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been a long time. I mean, what I was graduated what six six years ago. So just FYI for any questionable knowledge in this podcast, that is why. But no, I'm not bad, mate. Um, Sunderland playing Arsenal tonight. <sighs> Clash of the wide football titans. Um, just really don't want to get smashed up by them. Was actually meant to go to the game, so I feel like I'm going to be annoyed either way. If we win, I'll be fuming. I didn't go to the game. If we lose badly, I'm going to be fuming for that reason. So I'm reckon decent performance by Sunderland and a tight one 0 defeat would probably suit me. I think. Yeah, Hopefully. yeah. I mean, like, also going to make some changes. Uh, one of the things about. Disclaimer as well, um, if you've listened to the podcast for the first time, you'd be surprised to hear that uh, Dryden supports Sunderland and I actually support mm. Arsenal, uh, believe it or not. Um, and I think one of Arteta's problems is that, well, for Sunderland, is he doesn't really rotate. I don't know why. Like Wenger, like if this is if this is Arsenal Wenger, what we probably would have done is you'd get some youth players that probably have not played all season playing. Um, the likes of Florian Balogun, only played a game. You know, some of the, the real youth youth players in the squad, uh, Salah being another one. Not the Salah at Liverpool, there is a, there is a <laughs> Salah in Arsenal's youth setup. But with Arteta, I think your only worry is you're going to get fringe players that really want to play. I expect Pepe to play tonight. El mm. Nene, you know, these are guys who, you know, aren't really cutting it in the Prem, but are very experienced. But you never know, they're, they're going to be rusty. Um, Sun is a quarter final. They're probably not as bothered. Some of the players I've mentioned have got African Cup of Nations, mm. and I think if Sunderland uh, are up for it, then there's definitely um, there's there's definitely a, a scalp to be had. Um, so yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Well, it's just it's one of those where like Arsenal have been in really really good form recently, which is good in a way that they that might allow Arteta some room to rotate where he hasn't got the pressure of going out. You know, if if Arsenal had still maintain that form from the first three games of the season and Arteta was somehow still there and they would languish in 10th, I really do not think we would be seeing a rotated team come out tonight. I think we'd be seeing the, the guns come out. However, now with a bit of bit of form, but then again, if the team's in form, you don't want to play them. <laughs> so it's really hard. It's really yeah. hard to manage. Yeah, I think it's one of those as well um, that our squad's just too big without European football. So we are definitely going to rotate. It's just that some of those guys coming in are really going to want to stake their claim. Um, some of them for transfers. You're looking at mm. Maitland-Niles. Uh, you're looking at Eddie Nketiah. You're looking at Ilneni as well. Lacazette might play. These are all guys who have got deals running down. So, yeah, it will be, be an interesting game. Um, I expect Arsenal to win. I have a feeling it will be more of a, yeah, one or two nil. We're not big scorers, to be honest. We haven't really been under Arteta. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the game is today. Yeah, and aside from that, got the booster and feel awful. So, just FYI on that. But, Etch, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, mate. So, um, since you've had the booster, is that, um, how's that affected your eyesight? Is that so good? <laughs> what do you mean? Huh? 
Nah, what do you mean? Because prior, prior to the booster jab, you had terrible dress sense. I'm hoping after it's improved somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, you know what's getting annoying, right? It's a complete, this is a complete sidetrack, but yeah. you know how Spectresavers love piping up on Twitter whenever like something happens? Yeah. It's like a marketing thing. I think like yeah. Kane had said how he got the ball against um, Liverpool. Yeah. And he just absolutely clattered uh, Robertson or whatever. <laughs> and then Spectresavers like tweets saying, Oh, do you need some help from us, man? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's getting old. Uh, the, th- the thing is, we didn't even touch about that game. The problem with that match was when you're Harry Kane, right, you know, I guess they're going to ask you about the red card. Uh, the fact he's just said it with chest, like, yeah, it wasn't a red. It's like, come on, bro. Like, mm. Yeah, I mean, that one, we didn't even talk about that game. Yeah, that game was quite mad because I'm all full of our, you know, as an Arsenal fan, we've been wronged by it loads, but some of those decisions were just were mad. Like, not even the fact mm. that it's gone to VAR. I believe the Kane one, they just said, yeah, it doesn't need to be reviewed, which is mad in itself. Um, yeah, they were just shocking decisions. Um, I don't think we should obviously scrap it because that makes no sense. But how I just don't understand why Kane wasn't sent off. Um, mm. And, you know, Liverpool have a right to be aggrieved. Robertson deserved to be sent off as well. But... Yeah, should Kane have gone specs? <laughs> Players and managers never lie. Often they say they, they didn't see it, but obviously Kane was in the tackle, so <laughs> he, can't, <laughs> he can't say, uh, you know what, mate, I missed that one. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was unfortunate. Luckily, Robertson wasn't wasn't seriously hurt. Um, mm. That's, that's uh, the main thing as well. But, Indeed. yeah, definitely a red card. Definitely. But anyway, um, moving on to the topic today, uh, which is just your specialist area, as I've mentioned a few times. <laughs> um, why did you decide to look into this episode? Um, so, I mean, there wasn't actually too much relevance to the current, um, well, about the current day in terms of like right now, uh, Christmas time. However, the top four of the Bundesliga currently, and actually that's not a surprise because most of the Bundesliga are made up of teams from the old old West Germany. And it's a kind of topic we've had on our ideas list since uh, podcast began, to be honest. Um you know, why are there so few clubs from the old East Germany in the Bundesliga? Um, I mean, it should not be news to anyone that Germany was divided between uh, East Germany and West Germany for most of the, well, in almost the entirety of the second half of the 20th century following World War II. Um, the country was partitioned into zones um, after the war uh, between 1945 and 49. Um, and the East and West remained divided until... Uh, reunification in, in 1990. Um, in 1949, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, was established by the USSR in the East, and the Federal the Federal Republic of Germany, uh, the FRG, was established by the Allies in the West. So from 1949 to 1990, um, these two um, states op- operated side by side, but um, not in unison. Um, one point of note which is really interesting, I didn't really know this until looking into the this episode is West Germany was actually quite a bit larger than East Germany. Um, and upon reunification, the West had roughly four times um, the inhabitants compared with the West, which somewhat makes sense because they were sponsored by the USSR, whereas the West inside of Germany was sponsored by US, but you also had influence from the British and, and the French who, who kind of um, laid claim to, to territory after the war. So it does make sense, but I think that's a real good point to note for this topic. You know, you've got... <laughs> a West German side, which is, is, is much larger in terms of population um, and also larger in terms of, of size. Um, so, yeah, so currently only three of the current 18 Bundesliga teams occupied the, occupy the eastern part of Germany. That's Hertha Berlin, Union Berlin and RB Leipzig. 
Hertha were actually part of West Germany because they occupied the western side of Berlin. Um, Wolfsburg is the one I've missed out there. They are arguably east geographically. They're very, very central, not too far from Berlin, um, but they were actually part of the old West Germany. Um, I say not too far from Berlin. They're about 200 kilometers away. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a gravy there. But that leaves us with two clubs, really, uh, in the Bundesliga, uh, Union, Union Berlin and RB Leipzig. The latter did not exist before German reunification. So <laughs> you've really only got Union Berlin from the um, the old GDR that currently occupy the Bundesliga. So this episode is looking into why that is the case, you know, the current Western dominance. Um, we'll take a look at the old East German League, um, the old kind of divided national teams we'll touch on as well. Communism and football, which is kind of the backdrop to why there was such a divide. And we'll look at whether the footballing unification or reunification uh, failed in Germany um, in 1990 onwards. Yeah, I think it's one of those of uh, RB Leipzig that you have to always mention their name with gritted teeth. You know, obviously our, <laughs> our, our inaugural pod, the very, the very first one, uh, one for the history books. Uh, we spoke a lot about that and, you know, how it kind of... That's that's how I realised, and this is why it was one of our first ideas, why in East Germany there's so few German clubs, because I looked at a map when I was doing that pod and I was like, mm. there's just no clubs there. And I wondered why. Um, obviously, you would have thought in 2021, soon to be 22, that East, that RB Leipzig would be a pioneer for East German football. But mm. through its the way it's circumvented the 50 plus one rule and the way it's got its money and its influence in Red Bull, it's kind of like an outlier in that region. And it hasn't mm. really led to a surge in Eastern German football teams, which which, which we'll touch on uh, later on. Yeah, because they're so unique and obviously backed by such by such wealth. So it's um it's it's hard to for any other club to really compare in that area or to to mimic to mimic them in a sense. Um, so so moving on to kind of the the, the context around the current situation. So uh, kind of the Western domination since uh, reunification in the nineteen nineties. There's some mad facts here. Um, so in the 20 years between the 93 and 94 season and the 2013-14 season, only four teams from the former GDR reached the Bundesliga out of the 38 clubs in total that managed to reach the German tier, uh, top tier in that time. Since then, only Leipzig um, have added to that list and there was no East German teams in the Bundesliga between 2009 and 2016 prior to Leipzig's promotion. When I say East German, I mean the old East Germany, GDR. Um, just to <laughs> reiterate that before I get any um, hate mail. Germany's 2010 and 2014 World Cup squads had only one player born in the former GDR. That was Tony Cruz. Um, Klaus and Podolski were actually the only other two not born in the old West Germany. So only three of the entire squad weren't born in West Germany. Klaus and Podolski being born in, in Poland. Um, and in the entire period between reunification and 2020, there have never been more than two sides from the old GDR present in the Bundesliga at one time. Currently, it's just Union Berlin um, and RB Leipzig that occupy the Bundesliga as clubs based in the old East Germany. Um, and it's no surprise to anyone that no team from the old GDR has won the Bundesliga since reunification, largely because Bayern have won most of them. Um, but the other sides that have done uh, are also from the old West Germany. No former East German team has won the DFB Pokal, the equivalent of the FA Cup in Germany. Um, but as you kind of alluded to, and as I did as well, RB Leipzig have been the kind of the biggest side in that in that area, um, the best side in recent years from the old GDR territory entering 
um, European competition, uh, competition consistently in the Champions League. Um, but as I said, they were only formed, what was it, 2009? So they weren't around to feel the real effects of the, reunif- the reunification process, uh, a process that we'll, um, we'll come on to. So to uh, move on to the East German League, um, so this is the the old German league in the, in the old GDR. So the East German league was initially known as the DS Oberliga from 1949 and then altered to DDR Oberliga in 1958 um, and was part of the league structure within what was known as the, the DFV, effectively the, the FV of the GDR. Um, the last DDR Oberliga season um, due to reunification was the 1990-91 season. Um, from 1954-55 season up until reunification, the league was made up of 14 teams with two relegations, so not a large uh, structure. The most successful clubs were Berliner FC Dynamo uh, with 10 titles, SG Dynamo Dresden with eight titles, and FC Vorwärts Frankfurt with six titles. Berliner FC Dynamo um, with the famous Stasi team um, that began to be hated from by, by a, lot of, um, a lot of people in the East. The last ever DDR Oberliga champions were Hansa Rostock, who are currently in, I think, in the second division of the Bundesliga. Um, and particularly, in, but particularly in the 1970s and 1980s, clubs from the former German Democratic Republic actually made uh, regular piece, regular appearances in the latter stages of uh, European competitions, which is was news to me looking at this this topic. Um, Madgeberg won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1974, beating uh, AC Milan. Um, Karl Jais Jena and Lokomotiv Leipzig both made the final um, of the competition um, and Dynamo Dresden uh, played an East German record 98 games in Europe so that's just a bit of context to say look the, the East German league was a lot smaller and has been a lot smaller than the Western equivalent during that time um, but there was some forays in Europe and some success on the uh, continental stage not just isolated in the East of Germany yeah, the Cup Winners' Cup's decent. I mean, Arsenal won the under... <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, Arsenal won the under big George Graham, in case anyone didn't want to, didn't know that. Just give it a little Google. I think beat Palmer, actually, before mm. I before I graced the earth. So it was before, I think it was in either 93, maybe, or maybe it was 94. But that, that is interesting, because I think Eastern German football, we're going to touch on the national sides in a bit, but you just don't hear about it. Like, he, obviously, we weren't alive in the 70s or 60s. Well, rumour rumor has it I was, but I, in fact, I wasn't. <laughs> and it, it's just one of those things where I know so little about it and there's just not that much information on it or the information that's there is quite weak in terms of, I didn't know the most successful clubs there. We spoke about, mm. the, Bundes, we spoke about the Bundesliga earlier and we were like, you know, most of the clubs you mentioned apart from Leipzig, of course, I don't associate with huge amounts of success. So to see them actually win a Milan side <clears throat> who are so historically so famous mm. um, is, is is really impressive. Uh, and it's a shame that uh, Eastern German football didn't really kick on from that. I have my ideas as to why that was the case. Uh, but it's just, it's still a shame nonetheless. Yeah, true. Do you not think the European Cup Winners' Cup is just a nice, nice idea, a nice thing that once happened? Because realistically, I mean, so say Sunderland tonight, we're playing Arsenal. I know it's it's the League Cup. If we go through and we eventually win that competition, it's probably the first League One club and probably it's a long time to do so. We'll qualify for the Europa League. That is so irrelevant. I mean, it's a it's a kind of a real extreme example. But like, even if you're like a Wigan Athletic who won the FA Cup back in the day, or even if like a better example, you are a mid-table Premier League club now, 
or bottom half, would you not rather go into like a competition like that against other cup winners rather than go into the Europa League, where eventually you play against Champions League sides, kind of waste your time a bit, even though there are some financial... Yeah, I think well, it's like how the Champions League is just to be the champions. All of it is done to increase money, broadcasting and games. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's quite nice to have a competition which is just the cup winners. But the problem is, is that the, with the way money works is that will always exclude, you know, there are so few trophies. If Sunderland go and win the FA Cup, UEFA don't want them to be in the Cup Winners' Cup alone because they're going to lose out money from Arsenal not being there. Or a better mm. example would be uh, Chelsea or Spurs or Leicester because they've been performing better than Arsenal have lately. They don't <laughs> want that. They just they just don't want that. That's why they keep expanding it and they make new competitions and you know it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because they they want the big teams essentially to face each other as often as possible. And that's why we had that little thing called the uh, Europa Super League. No, what was it called? The Super League, not Europa Super League, European Super League, um, because that's what they want, really. So yeah, it would be quite nice. I think, you know, the idea of, you know, all of us here have won the Cups. But yeah, when you've got Juventus knocking on the door, crying that they're not involved and, you know, Man United crying because they're not involved and everyone else, then uh, that's why UEFA tries to tweak it to fit everyone in. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a tangent, but it does actually relate a bit to East Germany because the fact they were, were able to have a bit of a foray just was kind of owed itself to the fact that back in that time, it wasn't so kind of commercialised, whereas now we've we've seen it's just the same teams over and over in European competition. So um, even with the, in, the introduction of the European Conference League. Um, so so moving on to kind of to this this kind of section would be more to kind of compare with the West. So it's kind of a look at the the national teams and also to touch on kind of the fortunes of some of the Western German um, clubs as well. So um, East Germany and West Germany only faced each other actually on one occasion. Um, and East Germany actually won that game, 1-0, in a 1974 group stage match in Hamburg in the, in the 1974 World Cup. Um, East Germany were actually eliminated in the second group stage, uh, whereas West Germany actually went on to win the competition. I read a little bit about how that was a big win for East Germany, but when you know your rivals then go on to win it, it <laughs> kind of takes away a little bit of that. Um, and so, yeah, during division, uh, West Germany won three World Cups as a national side uh, and two Euros, appearing in three other World Cup finals and one other Euro final, which is just mental. In terms of the clubs, there was success over the um, over that period, which is was quite astonishing. Um, in the 1970s, 1980s, you know, for us, a lot of people will know, uh, owed in part to the rise of a young Bayern Munich side and also a Borussia Mönchengladbach side that is less well known. Um, you know, there's a lot of successful West German football in Europe um, it, at the time. You know, the, the legendary Gerd Müller uh, and Franz Beckenbauer coming through at Bayern um, during the 70s and 80s and, and really, really... West German football went from from strength to strength, not just in terms of club football, but international. And it is linked because, you know, it's, it's no surprise. You know, it's no kind of coincidence that that those Bayern sides um, and the Borussia Mönchengladbach side went on to achieve such great success domestically and international, uh, continentally in Europe. But then also the international team benefited at that time. Um, you know, I think the this success or but the strength of your domestic side probably have more bearing on the success of your national team because the likelihood is less players will play overseas. Um, so I do think it's linked to the fact that East German, the East German league, East German football was, you know, somewhat a bit more primitive. The league structure was was smaller. And um, we'll go on to talk about this, but, you know, investment comes from that as well, not just because they're communists, but just because of obviously the fact that they're smaller and have less population. So um, I think it's a, it's a really in- interesting point. 
Um, is Germany as a national team only actually qualified for that one World Cup, 1974, um, where they beat Germany, uh, and they never qualified for a Euros. So kind of a sign of the kind of a of disparity in terms of club and international football between the the West and the East. Yeah, I mean, the record's hardly ever discussed uh, Eastern Germany. I can see why. Um, it's actually a sporkle of first countries that enter the World Cup for the first time. Uh, I remember getting East Germany's wrong because I thought that they'd... I think it's countries that have only been in the World Cup once. Mm. What was the year they entered it? And obviously, East Germany, a country didn't know a great deal about at the time. And yeah, it, I can... yeah. Illustrated from the above, it's it's quite clear, you know, West Germany are synonymous with success. I wouldn't say iconic football, just just mm. a very regimented machine that you know got results. But yeah, their East German counterparts are hardly ever discussed. Yeah, you think of that period, what nine finals, yeah. five wins, four. It's just four um, runners-up medals. It's absolutely crazy. Um, just a, <laughs> just unrivaled success in that in that time. Um, so yeah, moving on to kind of a look into a look into why maybe East German football remains so primitive compared to the West and perhaps other nations in 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 West in the West generally or in Western football. Um, there's a really really good uh, article by uh, Jack Fildew in these Football Times um, called "The East German Curse: How Football in Reunification Failed," which is where I've taken a little bit of this information from, um, just to reference. But it's, it's a really fascinating article because it really talks about um, how he's how kind of the society in East Germany um, during division had its effect on football and sport generally. Um, and it, it goes on to, it goes on to mention about politically sport was seen uh, as a powerful tool for East Germany. As you mentioned at the start, I, I studied history. I did quite a lot of Soviet history, actually, not so much on East Germany, but on um, the growth of the USSR. And for sport, sport is really seen as that, um, as a tool for some of the values that are really endearing and very close to communist ideology. Um, but for, for the regime in East Germany, Olympic sport, sorry, Olympic sports were prioritized, um, over football because that's had more kind of sway on the international stage. Um, the, the regime wants to prove themselves in the West and also internationally in, in the Olympic games is often seen as that real stage in which you can do so, um, as opposed to a single sport like football, even though it was growing rapidly. Yeah, it's just interesting how much decision-making from a group, i.e. the uh, communist regime, can therefore dictate how a sport actually grew during that time and unfortunately got left behind. I mean, yeah, Olympic sports does kind of make sense because there's so many more medals to be won and mm. you, football wasn't what we know of it now. You know, it wasn't probably the biggest sport in the world then. It wasn't as commercialised. The revenues weren't as big. It wasn't even as popular. But it's just interesting how literally by a group of people deciding what you can and can't do has basically meant that East Germany has been left behind and it's feeling the effects uh, even to today. Yeah, of course. I mean, you've obviously got like, a communist state there where... Um, you know, the idea of particularly that time has probably changed a lot now, but the idea of a private enterprise is is a lot <laughs> is not really as much of a thing at all. So a lot of institutions are run by the state and so they have a lot of control over what happens with them. And there's a lot of good about that in a way. Some you could you could argue the idea that they, they keep the they keep the clubs grounded for the people against all this commercialization we see in the West, but in terms of growth, <laughs> it does nothing to um assist with that. Um so yeah, the, the GDR diverted youngsters' affection uh, for football towards other sports, uh, you know, in which 
multiple medals could be won at the Olympics at the Olympic level. We even kind of see that in a way now. We see US and China hit the top of that. They've got big populations, they're massive economies, but you you always seem to think you see the medal table and think there's definitely some political game going on here. We even just with the you know the United Kingdom or Team GB pouring Marines to cycling over the last like sort of ten fifteen years, like there's always seems to be an ulterior motive behind it. And I think the Olympics is that stage for those type of ulterior motives. Um, and as a result, they, they grew great affection for the West Germany team within East Germany because they probably felt they didn't really have, um, you know, like basically a, a team worthy of supporting, um, particularly if there's not any interest in the sport from the, from the regime. Um, and as was the hatred for the Stasi and the Stasi-influenced football clubs, um, there was even internal hatred for domestic clubs, such as Berliner, Berliner FC Dynamo, which I kind of touched on before. But as popularity of football across Eastern Europe grew, uh, or Europe generally, the GDR slowly began to allow it, uh, and the sport grew in East Germany in the 70s and 80s, um, as their kind of light success in Europe would demonstrate. But while football was thus permitted and grew in East Germany, the principles of communist society still served to inhibit uh, and control it, as um, we touched on before um, former Dynamo Dresden striker Matthias Sammer, who was actually... I believe still he used to be or still the um, I think he's director of football at Bayern Munich actually, but I need to check that. Um so Matthias Sammer, star of the Dynamo Dresden side, or ASA Dynamo Dresden side at that time, said that one day the entire squad was awarded with new boots. Mine were the only ones that did not fit, being three sizes too large. It's not a secret that it was a form of harassment as individualism was tolerated. So it was this idea that, you know, flair, uh, individual talent was kind of frowned upon over the collective which is it's very much like a, almost a, a socialist and very much a communist kind of ideology in, in society is that the collective works together to benefit everyone as opposed to individuals um doing so or leading that state even though you know ironically um over time there was great it was great um autocrats that led the, the ussr um so yeah, the idea was that football was permitted for educational purposes rather than enjoyment. Uh, East German Minister for Sport, Manfred Ewald, said that sport is not private amusement, it is social and patriotic education. Um, so yeah, that gives you a great flavour of, of how they used uh, football. And finally on this, the Stasi interfered in the lives of players and tracked defectors uh, to the West. There's, there's a few examples that I won't go on due to time of players defecting from the east to the west um, and being tracked down by the Stasi. Not always were they penalised in some way, um, but there's one in particular example where a, a player actually eventually was killed in an accident that is was argued to have been orchestrated by the, by the Stasi, but was never proven. And so when you've got players playing football and growing up uh, and learning their trade in a society like that, it does kind of add to this idea that was it really a hotbed for growing football clubs and football talent? Probably not. So the final kind of point of the section of this episode um, really is looking at, therefore, was reunification um, a failure? And it kind of goes somewhere to to answer the question of why is there so few German or old East German clubs in the Bundesliga? Um, so upon reunification, um, which happened uh, around the 1990 uh, unification of the, of the nation as a whole, the top two teams from the old DDR Oberliga, the old East German League, Hansa Rostock and Dynamo Dresden were added to the Bundesliga. Third to sixth joined the second division, while seventh to twelfth entered a playoff to qualify uh, for the second division. 
So effectively, two teams joined the Bundesliga and five joined the second, which you know is not is not a great deal. The integrated sides had come from you know a failing GDR economy, um, and then and themselves unable to complete financially with with Western clubs, um, particularly now without their stars backers. You think about a lot of these clubs, such as um, Dynamo Berliner. They were largely influenced by the Stasi. The Stasi were no longer there, um, or not formally, um, and so they didn't have that control. But they also hadn't had the kind of economic benefits of perhaps being in a Western economy as opposed to the East, where they weren't seen as businesses, they weren't seen as private enterprises. And so even though at that time, um, well, we're talking about the 90s now, but even over the 70s and 80s, the, the commercialization of football hadn't really kicked off you still think that it would be a, be a great gulf between the clubs in the East and the West. And obviously when you then integrate into a single league and other clubs have far better resources, they can pay higher wages, they can sign players for fees that you can't do. Ultimately, you're, you're going to be on the back on the back foot. Um, and also just look at the number of teams that went into that. And we're talking about reunification. What we're actually talking about is the integration of East German clubs into the Western leagues. So it's not like they're just merging two leagues together. They're taking the best, the better teams from the old league, and they're like forcing them into, um, into the Bundesliga. I think quite a really loose example of how that would apply in maybe another nation would be like if for some reason the SPL and the Premier League decided to mix. Um, I know now that would be a really, really, uh, in terms of like the amount of money that's in each each league and each game, that would be the, the disparity would be huge, and you probably wouldn't see too many SPL teams in the in the Premier League. But I remember we used to have this argument, I think it was like probably over 10 years ago, they used to talk about, you know, would Celtic perform well in the Premier League? Would Rangers? And it'd be supposed to be a similar sort of thing. You know, you're you're kind of trying to integrate clubs into existing league structure. Well, you've already got existing teams as well who, you know, they're not going to be happy if loads of East German teams come into the Bundesliga and force them out of the league. So they had to make space for them and only so many could come into it. So they were already on the back foot for so many reasons. Um but yeah, so I mean, clubs like Bayern had great success in the 70s and 80s um, with their growth unrestricted and a very highly um, capitalist economy. Uh, I mean, look at them today. They flourished. Um, they flourished in, in that time. Um, thus, it's no real surprise then that these German clubs, you know, that integrated failed to keep up and, you know, we could we could go on. But um, I think that is the... That is the key message. You know, individualism was, was frowned upon. The collective was was seen as the the means to, to success. But actually, at an individual club level, these clubs were becoming unequal to their Western counterparts. And when they integrated, they just couldn't couldn't match them. And I think, you know, that time frame of football is so key for clubs to grow. Obviously, teams like Chelsea City and now Newcastle, um, just don't get upset, um, <laughs> can attest to that. But in terms of growth, you're right. Bayern Munich was quietly building a behemoth, which is now mm. pretty much unstoppable. Um, and no, the German club is really near them. But that stifling of East German cl- clubs during that period, plus the fact that Germany has a 50 plus one rule, I'm not too sure precisely when that came in, but that obviously prevents you from kind of growing, you know, for, with an external source, i.e. investors. And it, it, it can just, you can see why, 
East German clubs didn't really prosper as they may well have done with the right levels of backing and investment, especially with their governments leaning towards an Olympic approach in terms of where they're going to get the medals and success from. Mm. That coupled with the the biggest team that we do have in the East being RB Leipzig go against that in every way, shape and form. One, they have heavy investment and have managed mm. to circumvent the 50 plus one rule by having dodgy like so-called fans as part of the 50 um which which all points to kind of a sad tale really in terms of you know not having an even distribution of successful clubs across germany i think a wider point about a lot of this is german germany's model from then even to now is basically all catered towards one it being a country that loves football but yet is very heavily dominated on one side of the country which lacks distribution and two that all of those clubs feed into Bayern, which we've discussed on a few occasions. Mm. Um, you know, if we were to say now, or now that they're united as one country, well, why can't clubs in Eastern Germany rise up the leagues? But the regulations and the power of uh, Bayern Munich have just prevented that, really. And now uh, their best hope is RB Leipzig, but then they have their own problems as well. So it's kind of just this this machine where no matter how no matter what levers you pull and what buttons you press it ends up with no teams in east germany and any good players they do have at rb leipzig and ultimately any good really really good players end up at bayern yeah no i think that's a i think it's a really good point because some of the other t- sides in in the old west germany have come and gone. You know, Dortmund are back and are a big side again. I remember them being quite a decent force in the early 2000s but they really fell off for a long time in terms of like being a player on the European stage. Obviously they reached the, the final, I think it was 2013. Um, and we all felt that heartbreak when they lost to Bayern. Um, but the real mainstay and they are, you know, based in the old West Germany are Bayern. As you right, as you rightly said, everyone, every other club is almost like a satellite around them that kind of like feeds off that large behemoth of the club. And so what chance do these East German sides have of ever emulating that when the status quo just remains a status quo? Um, but yeah, I think it's a really powerful point. Right, I guess we'll, we'll end it there for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Ryan, for the information. A real uh, history flashback, this one. Mm. Uh, that came back into yeah. the split between East Germany and, and West Germany and their footballing traditions and, and how they kind of came to be. So thank you for that. And thanks to you all for listening. Some some big, big plans coming up in January uh, mm. for the very few of you that probably listen to this part of the podcast. So uh, thanks, for, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening all the way to the end. And uh, you're here for my soon. Cheers, guys.